This is the 97th episode of Stockholm Legacy Report, a podcast about paper legacy. My name is Victor Bernhardt. With me are my dear co-hosts, Robert Sensian and Christopher Wikström. We are also joined by special guest, none other than Tom D. Decker. We will talk to Tom about legacy in Belgium, art, and not least about the European Legacy Masters, which are just around the corner. Warm welcome to you, dear listener. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tom. Yeah, hello and welcome, Tom. Hey guys, uh, very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Stockholm Records Report can be found whenever we release on the Top Decked app. We, of course, want to talk a bit about Paper Legacy, as we always do. And there has been some played, although not from my side. But first up, we must introduce our lovely guest properly. Tom Decker hails from Gent in Belgium, from where he plays quite a bit of Legacy and Vintage. In Legacy, Tom has, among other things, made Top 8 at Nebraska's War 5 and was the runner-up in the Belgian Legacy. Cup of 2019. Under his belt are also many vintage top eight finishes across Europe. Tell us more, Tom. When did you start playing Legacy? Why do you love it? And what do you play? Yeah, I started playing Legacy at around 2010, I believe. I'd basically been upgrading this one casual deck I had to try and make it as strong as I can, uh, just as like a solo project, because uh, the deck itself wasn't really suited anymore to play with my super casual friends. And so it was, technically speaking, a vintage deck, because it had uh, a Jamotswil and a Vampiric Tutor in there, <laughs> and all these cards I still love until today as one-offs. So one day I uh, I just walk into my my local game center, which is a it's outpost is our LGS, and ask if anybody is up for a game of vintage. And to my surprise, one of the guys actually had a dredge on him. So we started playing, and turns out they had a team going in Ghent, Magic Club Ghent, as it's still called today. And they were yeah they were coming together every Thursday. And so yeah, that was basically the start. So I started naively with the idea of I'm going to play vintage, but then quickly went into legacy as that was the more uh, accessible format, and there were more events going on at the time. I think a year or two after that, or maybe a year after that, I went to GP Madrid, which was uh, one of the first like giant legacy GPs on European soil. And yeah, the event was a total mess. I don't know if uh, any of you were there, but it was massively over capacity and it was started super late. Yeah, I've heard stories. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I wasn't there. But yeah, I've heard the stories. Yeah, but uh, but I was hooked, even though the, the tournament experience itself was was very very much terrible. But the format was lovely. Yeah, from there I, I stuck to together with the team of Magic Up Kent. We kept playing every week, and eventually I also got started well or got involved with organizing the Belgian Legacy Cup, which was a tournament series that was organized by our team and, and two other teams in Belgium. So the three big communities together. And the idea was that they would do a national championship and each team would would be able to to hold one or two trials each year where you could earn a buy for it. That was just the structure. So completely community driven. And I basically took over from the old guard that was doing it in 2014, which meant building a website and building the socials and connecting to as many people as I could. And since then, I've been both a player and as much as I can, an ambassador for for Legacy and just Eternal Magic as a whole, because I kept playing Vintage all this time, including having some of my best career finishes, if you want, for as far as in Eternal Magic you can make a career out of it. But I have some good finishes in Vintage. It's a format I truly enjoy whenever I get the chance to play. So the most recent addition to my ambassadorship for the game has been my involvement in the European Legacy Masters, which I'm sure we'll get be able to get into later in the podcast yeah for sure i mean that's so cool there's so much to unpack here not gonna uh, take it all at once but just to ask you about the current scene in ghent and in belgium in in general what is the legacy community like 
at the moment it's still in a way recovering from what we had before COVID. So our sure, communities sure. too were struck by the combination of COVID and also the format being kind of terrible in the 2018, well, 2019, 2021 periods. So that did a lot of damage. But so currently in, in Belgium, there's still three communities. They weren't as big as they used to be that are doing events. One of the oldest communities unfortunately quit last year. Some of our listeners may recognize the name uh, Mole or Magic Club Mole. They are, I think, one of the oldest like eternal communities in Europe. They are up there with the people in, from, for example, the Botrop series and some of the legacy communities in Italy that are, and even, for example, Barcelona in Spain that are super old. A lot of the Belgian scene, I would say, depended on, on Mole. Unfortunately, they quit. Now, so now there's a team left in Antwerp, which has some of the best players, I think, in the region. There's a team in Leuven that is mostly revolved around legacy FNMs. And then in Ghent, we have a monthly tournament on Sunday that's proxy-friendly, going on at a, at a relatively new bar. And then at our old AGS outposts, they have just announced that we are restarting legacy FNM, which we used to have, a monthly one. of, And that's actually starting this week. So, um, yeah, I'm bound to go to, uh, to play legacy again in my, uh, my own old store here in Ghent. Oh, lovely. Oh, that's exciting. Well, that's fantastic. Hoping you're going to do well there. And thanks again for being with us here tonight. We're going to talk about art and European Legacy Masters in a bit. But first, now, Paper Legacy is the bread and butter of our here podcast. So, Robin, have you been slinging any cards lately? Yes, as a matter of fact, I have. We have to have a few also FNM-style Legacy Nights each week since the end of the vacation for me so I've, I've been playing a little bit and uh, last thursday i brought the old trusted naya adepts interestingly like online most players have uh, skipped the red and went over to black to play absent depths of course playing the bow masters and perhaps also trying out some different cards in black thought seas in the board plague engineer comes to mind and grist is also of course a great planeswalker to green some for but I don't have any Bowmasters yet, so I stuck with my Naya Depth stick. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the legacy experience. You play what you have. I made some changes to the deck to sort of try to combat the meta, mostly in the board. Up the count of Veil of Summer, since like black is a very strong color now. A lot of griefs, a lot of reanimates. Uh, so I also went on with more endurances in the main to sort of try to combat that. A pet card of mine is Fiery Justice, which I played two of in the board. It's a sorcery for white, uh, red, and green. It deals five damage, as you may split as you wish, and then it gives your opponent five life. So in like in, in dream scenario, you can kill some of the critters and uh, gain your opponent five life to also take care of the shadow. That's the like dream scenario. <laughs> but also, like of course, good against elves or taxes or something like that. Unfortunately, I brought out some of the more grindy cards, I should say. I'm down to three knights, and I took out the excavator, I took out the liberator. And in my first game, I'm, I, I'm up against the mirror. But he has gone more grindy than me because he has punishing fire in his deck. And he has the full playset of knights. And knights and plows is like... The winners in a mirror and he has he has more of that and per, perhaps better keeps than me as well so we managed to win that and after playing against one grindy green green sun deck i'm up against something i haven't played <laughs> against before so this guy he brought like agro loam a la 2006 
you know, wow. Countryside Crusher, Terra War. That's hot. <laughs> it was the whole kit. And they also played Devastating Dreams to try to like <laughs> almost play like a Ernamgeddon style of game where he like destroys all the lands, removes all the little critters and have a huge Countryside Crusher left on the battlefield. Playing Devastating Dreams in 2023. I'm so glad I get to hear it. Yeah. Somebody's <laughs> yeah. living the dream. Yeah. The devastating dream. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, I remember at some point during, I think, maybe the Omniscience meta with uh, Dig for Time, a lot of lands decks started trying out, you know, playing Buseju, like the Tap Buseju and Burning Wish. I tried it out as well. And, you know, wishing for a devastating dreams when you know it's going to be absolutely soul crushing. It's so <laughs> fun. Yeah. That card is uh, very... <laughs> Very brutal. In the game one, he tried that tactics against me. I had a reclaimer open that could fetch up a flagstone. And I also think I had a mox. So like the land destruction part of it was maybe not so efficient. And unfortunately, I was able to also plow his crusher that was meant to crush the game. (laughs) And so he was left with like no permanence after that. And I had like a mox and a tapped savannah something like that but in in game two he gets to do his thing a crusher reveals a shit ton of lands i don't have a plow and i die very very quick fashion and like in the in the third game i i guess i just have triple plow or something like that to just kill everything that he presents then i'm up against another spicy deck thought lash combo with paradigm shift and you know oracle win welcome to stockholm that's how we do it was it a mono blue build yeah it it was mono blue green or black no mono blue in the first game i also only saw islands so i thought he was on only islands but he had a like a plethora of different lands otavara and all that but funnily he go for a paradigm shift win and uh, i managed to have one endurance and one plow in my hand so I can beat his oracle. <laughs> Sometimes that just happens. But then in game two and game three, I have a real tough time with the actual Thought Lash card. Like Merit Lage, I have a hard time getting through because you can just mill cards to protect the damage. I get to learn also that endurance cannot beat Thassa's oracle when you can just like mill the cards again as soon as I put them back so the only thing that could save me was enough red blasts I guess and uh, yeah I just didn't have that I remember I went to your table when you played yeah. that game and when the Fasa was on the stack also yeah. I think uh, the devotion was up to like six exactly also. On yeah, their yeah. side, there's so little you yeah. can do when they had the Thought Lash. And they cast Oracle through Cavern also, so like literally it's Stifle or Bust. If that deck would be much bigger, I should play like some, that like the artifact that hinders the come into play effect or something like that. Yeah, the Torpor Orbs. Anyway, in the final game, I'm uh, playing against Agro Artifacts, uh, sort of 8 cost, but without the card draw and with much more aggressive cards and i think he was on a playset of retrofitters because it was like retro constructs beatdown was his plan yeah this was an 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 affinity deck yeah Uh, i played against it also played the playset ravagers okay i I never saw that i didn't see any (laughs) vintage all-star and the funny thing is i I keep a uh, no i mull a hand that has a mox and a collector oof 
So I could have played Collect Proof on turn <laughs> one and just like, but like in the blind, that's a super bad head. It's a, it's a mull to, it was a mull to six already. So I didn't keep that, of course. And in game one, he just runs me over. He spews his hand. I try to waste him off his Ursa Saga, but he's like, that just puts me down on tempo. And then I die to those like retro constructs that he can make each turn. But then in game two, I have some cards, of course, in the board to board in and I can take a force of vigor to like clear out some of his early mana sources hinders him a little bit and then oof to settle the game and in game three we have a really grindy game where he has double retrofitters just spitting out creatures and i make a merit leech but i can never get through his blockers i don't play a tower of magistrate in the board anymore because like i haven't had a use for that in a long time so we just build up the board i i keep the merit leech back in the beginning to like block his 4-4 constructs that could attack me but eventually i get enough blockers and a couple of knights in so i can start attacking eventually i find a green sun to get the ooze to stop the factory and eventually take it down but like four really interesting decks to play against and uh, some 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 very fun games for sure. I was going to say, it's such a spicy Thursday for you. Yeah, you can see it's like in the middle season before like the real series begins. And yeah, I think in two weeks, the next season will start. So people are still, you know, Minds Desires and Band. Mm. Uh, let's have fun. People look in their binders yeah. to see what neck fit card they can squeeze in the deck. And, you know, it's that kind of mentality. Now, yeah. The other card from alliances. That... <laughs> <laughs> well, so Christopher, how about you? You did promise us on the, the last episode that you and I recorded that we were going to see some minds desire shenanigans from you. Have you delivered on that promise? No, it was, it was a blatant <laughs> lie. I promised more than I could chew. You know, I was I was playing I was planning to play a, a killer bee list that looked crazy with paradoxical outcome, grim monoliths, minds desires, and echoes. But instead I, I ran into some time management issues and put together quite a non Christopher deck instead, which is Grix's Delver. I think that's maybe what the fuck? <laughs> I think it's one of the furthest things away from a spicy minds desire deck, like the super tuned <laughs> tempo deck. You remember from like episode twenty or something, we were discussing when are you finally gonna try and play an actual good deck and see <laughs> what a good play like you could do with that. So was this it? I have played a lot of Delver in the past, but I prefer like the Canadian threshold style. For sure of delver this was kind of like a lot of cards cost a lot of mana <laughs> like for me Merktide and orcish bowmaster i'm mm-hmm. like whoa these, these are crazy expensive but i'll go through the games quite quite quickly you know it, it wasn't a super successful night i mulliganed quite a lot but the first game was against jeskai control and i had to mull to i think five and six and this was against a staff control version. Game one, I just get completely... I win the die roll and multi five. And uh, my opponent plays like a turn two staff. It just feels so bad. I think I got Supreme Verdicted. And uh, eventually there's like a Wandering Emperor in play. And you're just sitting there looking at your life fading away. In game two, I think I had an opportunity to turn the game around but my opponent just blind flipped the terminus which was pretty rough at that state of the game so it was a pretty brutal 0-2 but then I was up against the affinity player that Robin played in his last round the short version is that I don't think I should have won the best of three my opponent made one error in game one which I think cost them the whole match and that was equipping a shadow spear 
to one of their ward creatures. So they were playing this ward creature that whenever you cast an artifact, it grows. Patchwork Automaton. Yeah, Patchwork Automaton. They equipped the Shadow Spear to one of those, which was a free-free, becoming a 4-4, when they had a 6-6 construct in play. Because I, I think they said that they were afraid of removal, but it's literally maybe Brazen Borrower, <laughs> because Bolt is not getting anything after that so that was a bit of a misstep and i i think it allowed me to have lethal with a bow master and like a swing back so that was a bit unfortunate for them but game two and three is really scary because some of these affinity decks you don't really know what to expect like robin said they had all of these retrofitters and stuff like that but my opponent also brought in chokes which they played with spire of industry in game two I just got super blown out by that card paired together with a retrofitter that just, you know, you can't really make attacks. They had an Emery, so they could just recast an Ornithopter from the graveyard and make it into a 4 for each turn. And I was just sitting there being choked. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. At least I, I'm dying quite quickly this way. <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah, in game three, the choke hit the board again, but... I had a sufficient board already, and by board I mean I had one Merktide in play, and I had uh, I had just meltdowned a large a large chunk of their board. So that Merktide just got there. <laughs> it wasn't even that big. I think I think I exiled one or two instants or sorcerers. Like it was, it's still a five five flying. It's still still a big big boy. Then I was up against one of our former guests on TES, and I just did Delver things. <laughs> they are trying to go off. I have one days, and they have this really long pause, and then proceed not to combo. And it was like at spell two or something. I don't know. Like TES has been pretty good against Delver recently with. A lot of how Bryant Cook has been building the deck with, you know, a lot of veils and stuff like that. But I, I think I was quite lucky here as well. My opponent was maybe one card away from winning game two, but I, I managed to steal both games. Last match was against another Jeskai Control, but this was not a uh, staff deck. This deck played Ursa Saga and Four Fearlingers. Four Fearlingers. I multi five both games that I was on the play, which is not super ideal. But in game one, I actually managed to win on that mole against the seven. So that felt really good. I got some tempo in. I played some Merc Tides and the Merc Tides sometimes get there. Game two, we had quite a grindy game, but I think my opponent just got to do too many strong plays. Like uh, I think a Supreme Verdict hitting free creatures and, uh, you know, some stuff like that. And game three, this was a mull to five again, but I don't five find uh, land number two, like my second colored uh, land, for I think six turns. And I was sitting with, you know, counterbalance, two counterbalance, two Merktide, Bowmaster, and, you know, everything in hand. So that was super rough. Oh. Eventually I got fourth Erlingas, <laughs> <laughs> however you, you know, say that word, for maybe five or six tokens, which is uh, pretty rough. So that was that was my tournament. 2-2 uh, with Grixis. You were overrun by the Rohirrim. Yeah, and which fits if you have Bowmasters in your deck. I mean, we've all seen that scene. Yeah, 
I I would have loved if I managed to squeeze a bowmaster yeah, in yeah. there, <laughs> so actually riders would have gone through me. But I was just sitting there hoping to find land number two. So like, yeah, the the only orc my opponent was hitting was me, my sad face on the other side of the All table. Right. So yeah, that was my tournament. Nice. How about you, Tom? Have you had any paper play opportunities lately? So yeah, the last event I played was uh, two weeks ago, actually. We had an, an event in Turnout. So there's a, a relatively new TO. He started doing Legacy and, well, Eternal Weekends, basically. Well, he literally calls it the Mjati Eternal Weekend. He's doing, I think, three or four each year. And I've been going to most of them. There's a, this year, there's a ranking and I'm like pretty high up in the legacy and they, they have this uh, incredible custom-made playmat for the winner. So I'm trying to play my best there and not trying to mess around too much. So there's not much brewing going on. I ended up taking Blue Black Dutch Shadow. So not the most exciting choice, but I'm also in, in the process of, I guess, preparing for four seasons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do have an actual event to practice with. And I was briefly considering playing some Asper brew with samurais the stout hearted i was also wasn't sure the day before if i could get my hands on sauron's ransom so i stuck with uh, blue blue black shadow because i had all the cards laying around and a good friend uh, who was able to borrow me the four bowmen i needed so yeah we were 47 players so we had six rounds nice. of swiss before top eight and round one i sat down and found myself against grixis delver I've been playing with, uh, with Blue Black Shadow for a few months now, but I wouldn't like consider myself an expert with the deck, far from it. And it's also like one of the first days decks I'm really getting into. So normally I'm not really uh, much of a tempo player. And a friend had told me that Grixis Delver was supposed to be a, like another great matchup still for Shadow, well, Delver in general, because you want to go to like six life and they just want to bolt you twice, I guess. So I was already feeling a bit scared. But luckily, I think my opponent also wasn't as familiar with his deck. I ended up 2 owing him. I think game one, he showed some of the inexperience with the matchup. And so what happened is I, I had griefed and reanimated grief uh, early in the game. I started beating him down after tearing his hand apart. We get into the position where he, I think, reset a creature of mine with Brazen Barber and then ends up flashing it in. While I am at 8 life and he is at... I think six or seven. And so he untaps, attacks with the Brazen Borrower to put me from eight to five and then plays Murktide Regent, which is a punt because now uh, I have, sorry, besides the grief, very important, I also have a Dead Shadow lying around. And so now all of a sudden my Dead Shadow, instead of being a five-five, becomes bigger than his Murktide and a lethal threat. So if he just doesn't attack, he plays Murktide, passes a turn, I, can, I can't really attack and he kills me on the swing back. But because he attacked with the Borrower, now I can swing with the Shadow and the Grief, take the initiative again, if you will, and then he dies the next turn. So yeah, he kind of threw the game away there. And then game, game two, I had a, a really good draw. But I also ended up blowing him out, him out with Bowmaster which I think is yeah one of the things the card does is really punish players for mistiming their cantrips or not playing around it. So that's uh, yeah, starting to look of a, like an important skill in current legacy given the numbers that are flying around, the number of orcs. Round two, uh, I, I was up against Mono Black Helm or Mono Black Stompy or, or how do you want to call it. But so yeah, more Bowman. Yeah, this time around I just had a, 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 an insanely good draw and I basically could yeah grief, double grief him, then daze his first threat because the deck is kind of susceptible to days i would say and then just take over land a quick murtack and take over from there the only i think tricky thing in that matchup was to navigate both graveyards because you never want to for example i had a, i drew a troll pretty early in game two 
but you never cycle the troll unless you can immediately reanimate it because otherwise they might do the same thing for you. And I, I think I ended up stranding two reanimates in his hand in game two because of simply just because of that. So yeah, that's a, I think an interesting dynamic in the matchup. I think the only card I needed to dodge was shield rat because if that one resolves, it's kind of a pain in the ass to get rid of. And she shows little mercy, but he he didn't shield rat me. So good times. Then uh, so I'm two and zero. Oh, then I then I'm up against actually my nightmare matchup. So the the past two events I played shadow at in the past month, I always ended up losing the quarter finals to Lance and lo and behold now I'm up in round 3 against uh, Green Red Lance again I don't even have notes he just wiped the floor with me in 20 minutes I think both games I end up not getting a threat in play before he has double maze and then he gets to kill he creates a 20-20 while I'm off of guard so like not not really much to report on i do think yeah lance is one of the hardest matchups for blue black shadow in my experience i tend to maybe not respect it too much in the sideboard for some cards you also have very limited options i believe and what what would you put in the in the sideboard to combat lance one of the key cards that 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 i did win so the next round i'm also up against lance by the way and there i ended up winning game two because of a resolved court of cunning so that's a really strong card but it's also not a card you want to run yeah actually more than one of like if you if you'd have infinite cyber space you'd like to i guess for some other chips but that one really helps and then surgical and force of negation are both actually cards you you like a lot but the problem is that surgical instruction you don't really need all that many in the grave in your sideboard because your reanimator matchup is kind of nutty because mm-hmm, yeah. you have this so much counter magic and the reanimates yourself to steal their threats so your plan against them is rock solid so you don't really want to pile of surgicals but against lands in particular they're really good because you need to shut off wasteland you need to shut off right from the room you would like to shut off punishing fire which can be really tough if you're under that shadow draw so there's yeah there's a saga there's so many things you need to yeah, control older angles are great yeah and the same reasoning goes for force of negation like you'd love to play two three force of negation against lands but because your combo matchups are so favorable because of the pile of hate that that shadow especially the grief build is like it has so much discard and so much disruption you don't really have a use for force of negation in the sideboard again except against lands yeah that's true the last event i i, I lost against it i had actual tabo's weapon in my sideboard and i drew it and it oh. still Ooh. felt terrible <laughs> so, I, so so now this time around round four i i actually ended up beating lands although this was the green white version it sorts to blow shares in it but actual lands not white ups. well yes and no in a way punishing fire and especially specifically grove of the burn willows is more annoying to deal with than swords to blow shares mm. because playing around <laughs> swords to blow shares is really just the shadows and it's really just about not over committing but you end up hitting their hands so often and they are not a cantrip deck able to tuck them away that you if you play smart you never really get blown you shouldn't really get blown out by it by it sorts of brushes from decks like that in my opinion i actually felt that kind of felt better but also uh, yeah my opponent like i lost game one pretty swiftly but then game two he kept i believe i was able to color screw him because they run if they don't have the basic forest they don't actually run all that many green sources and so i ended up yeah being able to i think get rid of a mox with a hercules uh, hercules recall while he was yeah already missed the land drop while he had exploration in play and that ended up color screwing him and locking him out so i could land court of cunning that was game two and then game three he kept, he, he kept a super sketchy seven I, I took his fear of resistance from his opening seven with grief and then just troll reanimated and killed him on turn two and he had nothing to to put against it. He had no saga to put blockers into play. No no maze of it. Because he has, if he just has maze of it, it's uh, mm. already mm. an uphill mm. battle again. Mm. But now I, yeah. Troll just ran him over. So yeah, it kind of stole that one there. So then I'm three and one. And uh, next round I'm up against the wild one. I I've named it like black green Cheerios. 
but I don't know what the official name is. So it runs the old Cheerios line of, I think, Glimpse of Nature, and then all the zero drops you can imagine. So Mamnite, Ornithopter, big appearance, big day for Ornithopter, apparently, uh, going off this uh, <laughs> yeah. this, re- this legacy report. <laughs> but also, yeah. yeah, Fire Action Walker, I mean, everything you can imagine. The, the, so the idea is that you chain all of that into a very big ancient Imperiozar. Any idea what that card is? No, <laughs> I'm I'm googling right now, or well, googling now. I'm sounding like a boomer, but I'm I'm looking at it. Yeah, so it's I, I believe it's it's seven mana. Yeah, five and two green, six six. Yeah, six six. It has convoke and it enters the battle. It has trample and uh, ward also ward yeah, two. Yeah, ward two. And it yeah. enters the battlefield with two plus one plus one counters for each creature that convoke that you use to convoke. <laughs> and so, yeah, game one, I have an early I think Dotsies or grief. And I take the glimpse of nature. I leave him with the monster. So the gig is kind of up, but I'm still not sure what the shadow is, of course, because I've never played against this deck before. But he ends up never finding a new uh, glimpse or zero drops to get to get the chain going. And I just kill him with uh, probably a Merktite. But then game two, I keep a hand which has a bunch of discards. I think even a Flusterstorm, because I boarded that into, because glimpse is so key to their to their deck, of course. Yeah, they just go off turn one because <laughs> I didn't have the force. Uh, so he <laughs> he chained Glimpse into six zero drops into two petals into a 16-16 Imperiozar. And even though I have Snuff Out in hand, I <laughs> don't have enough expensive. life to kill it before I before I can pay for the ward. Oh, right. Yeah, 16-16 is the magic number too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just enough. So uh, yeah, good on him, I guess. But then And then game game three, I was on the play again and I just uh, did the, the classic scam thing. I just tore his head to pieces and keep uh, kept him stuck with unplayables. I mean, you want to reanimate the Imperiosaur for sure. <laughs> game one, I was thinking about it, but I was already beating him down, and I just wanted to make sure he couldn't operate in, uh, in any possible way. Yeah, I think my current my Merktite was just bigger than, than the silly <laughs> six six because I'm not convoking for it. So that puts me at four and one, which would uh, normally well, if if I have some luck with my breakers, I should be able to draw. But in this case, that wasn't the case. I think I didn't even check the breakers myself. I just trusted my opponent to to do his homework he already asserted that he was going to be out if we drew based on the result on the next table so he couldn't afford it was also a, a quite accomplished player from germany who can is like i would say old legacy royalty in a way a Carsten linden he used to be known for playing the burg deck so a death rights nimble mongoose super low to the ground well technically four color trash deck but it was actually it was quite close to the canadian threshold a philosophy i would say i think that deck may have even had winter orbs in the sideboard the old one yeah, a very competent player. And he was on Blue-Red Delver straight up this time. And he dismantled me pretty easily. Like game one, yeah, I basically do what I need to do to try and get a clock on him. But he manages to hide a Merktite with Brainstorm. When I check his hand at a critical time, untap, slam the Merktite and kills me in the next swing with a bolt as backup or something close to that. So really a classic Delver game from him. He also wins the die roll. I know it's uphill from the start. And then game two, I end up mulliganing to five. And I think I gave it my very best shot. I ended up on turn two reanimating the troll with days backup what it, what ended up happening is he flusterstones my reanimate but i could yeah pay for one of the copies then days to pay, to get rid of the second one to force the troll into play but he ended up having the dismember oh. Yeah, oh. he ended up playing yeah, apparently he had two in the main deck and he just had one in hand and yeah from a mode to five that was just game over for me so four and two are still still, still a very interesting event for me like the way i constructed my sideboard usually uh I, t- until now i'd kept pretty close to to the net decks, but this time i just rebuilt it from scratch the way I liked it. I had, for example, Snapcaster Mage in my sideboard, which was I really enjoyed all day. 
just to double up on things like surgical extraction, which or maybe the or the fluster storm, which I could want more of in certain matchups, but couldn't justify playing more than one copy of in the sideboard, and also to up my threat count against certain decks. Uh, it was really good for me. Hmm, nice. So yeah, just very good day at. Even though I didn't end up making top eight, can't win them all. Yeah, force four two is great. Now, well played for sure. Having listened to this podcast for a while, you know that we love Magic the Gathering art. And you are a collector of Magic the Gathering art. Tell us about this. Why did you begin and how does one go about doing this? Obviously, as a long-time Magic player, I'm also an enjoyer of the, the beautiful art that gets commissioned for the game. So I've been just a fan for the longest of times. My girlfriend, she, she also plays Magic, and she's also an artist herself. So, we, so she was actually way more into it than I was. Around, I would say, 2015, 2016, when I was traveling to events, she was the one poking me like, oh, there's actual this or this artist going there. You should go and meet them and shake hands. So that just basically got me very, very timidly into the art community, you could say. But so we also ended up meeting a couple of the agents, most, most notably Jeff Ferreira and Mark Aronowitz. Mark in particular is quite a known quantity in the art community. He's the agent for some of the biggest artists in the game, like Dan Fraser, Richard Kane Ferguson. And ever since we met him at an event, we've been lucky enough to be able to call him a friend or at least a very good acquaintance. Through him, we got uh, accepted into these these groups on Facebook where yeah, art gets sold and traded. So that's actually the process how most magic arts get get gets acquired by people. It's just Facebook groups, and the the agents mm. or sometimes the artists themselves. Or the collectors, they, they post the works they have available. And then depending on yeah, what you're dealing with, there's either an auction or they're just, you know, taking offers and you slide into them their DMs. And then often it's just about money, of course. The first one we got was just, an, in a way, an impulse by you. You see a, a beautiful work appear on the group and you look at it and you say, yeah, what if we we can afford it? It's, of course, it's a costly hobby to have, collecting uh, <laughs> original magic art. Well, you play vintage, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but I, I got into vintage using the tried and proven strategy of buying it before it was all super expensive. For the art, it works. And with the arts works, it's, it's a bit of the same game. The, over the years, the art is also appreciated significantly in value which has also resulted in people getting pushed out of the community and lots of casual i would say enjoyers being kind of priced out which is unfortunate so there's some parallels also in the community by the way with i guess the vintage collectors and the the magic art collectors there's a lot of money involved in both cases and also a lot of passion for the game sure of course like some of these big collectors are not just cocky millionaires there are people deeply invested into the game who could buy anything to hang onto their wall but they like they this love particular, magic but they love magic yeah. yeah and that's i'm not a millionaire far from it but i love magic enough to have uh, from time to time uh, spent some money on on some of the artwork so the first one we, we actually got was Sunblade Elf from I, I think I'm it's like from M12 or M15 yeah 
by Lucas Graciano. And it's a pretty simple piece, but it's really beautiful. And it's true, Lucas's agent who was trying to move it to make room on his wall for something else. I believe that we that we got it. I, th- I guess it's kind of like with magic that it starts with one and then it, it grabs you and, and you keep going. Or I think maybe, or maybe like with tattoos, like you think I'm only getting one. I was just going to say with tattoos. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, t- you get the first one, then you sort of, I'm going to get 12 more. <laughs> yeah, and, and we ended up getting uh, about 12 more. I think that's an appropriate estimation of what the, co- where the collection is at now. But we, yeah, we have it all around the house. Some of my favorites are, well, Sabertooth Cobra is one that uh, we have in our hallway. It's a beautiful card for Mirage, beautiful set. And I'm very excited to get to meet that I get to meet the artist uh, who's coming to Four Seasons, Andrew Robinson. Ooh. It's uh, it's one oh. of my personal favorites. There's also Spellstutter Sprite, the FNM promo by Christopher Muller is on our walls here. That's in our living room. Nice. I love Christopher Muller. I saw that you had Oyobi. I love that art. Yeah, that's also one. Yeah, it's in our guest room. So that one we actually got framed. So some of them we framed ourselves and some of them you get to frame with them. And the frame is also absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, we, we have quite a few from Christopher Muller. We also have Molten Firebird from Planner Chaos, which is also a beautiful, a beautiful piece of art. Yeah, and then I, I guess it's hard to pick favorites, of course. It's one I'm very, or two I'm very proud of. And the those are ones we got relatively early are uh, the original intruder alarm from stronghold and also Megrim, because the two pieces of art they are sister pieces they are by the same artist donato giancola they are three mana enchantments from the same set and they happen in the same the same room in the story in the i think the dream halls there is what they are called from from volrat oh wow so they are set in the same room different parts of the story of course yeah Megrim in particular is also a card that's near and dear to my heart because Back when I started playing casually back in 99, everybody had a Megrim, Bottomless Fault, him to Torak, so Hypnotic Spectre deck. Yeah. Everybody had it. So I even had a, yeah, I had a Megrim Warp Devotion deck back in the day. So I played, I've played with the cards quite a lot. Same with Spellstutters, right? So I try to, uh, if possible, I like keeping cards that I have an actual connection with besides the art being beautiful. Yeah, these are all bangers. I, I really love the Sabertooth Cobra also. Yeah, it's another card many people will cite off the top of their head as like being this great work of art. But I think especially in its time, it was it was beautiful. And I, I distinctly remember playing it in my very first deck, not because it was good, but because it looked good. Because that was the the only qualifier. That's why my first Magic deck, of course, had a copy of Lord of the Pit. Because it was awesome. But I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about, you know, the Mirage time and art. Because a lot of these things are either sort of realistic, but they have this magical setting about them. I think Sabertooth Cobra is exactly the sweet spot of Mirage art. There's a lot of bangers in that set. Like for, uh, I think the Dark Ritual from that set is my favorite Dark Ritual artwork because it's so yeah, it's dark super, and grimy. It's super it's good. So, yeah, it's very yeah. shamanic. As a collector, I have a set of beta Dark Rituals, which in my vintage deck, I guess they go better. In my Legacy Storm deck, I'll always play those because they're, they're so beautiful, the, mm-hmm. the Mirage ones. Yeah. And I have a pile of the basics, of course, that are that the set is just full of beautiful cards. I haven't seen the art for Megrim before. Never sort of encountered the card, but I'm looking at it now, and it's—I uh, mean, I can—it's so clean and so it tells several stories at once. I'm not going to go into describing this card for the listeners because you have to see the art for yourself. There's so much going on here, even though there's a subtle energy to it but what i also love is that this card also has like flavor text of old which sort of was way more poetic and i'm going to read this one out so it's a quote here you can run from your pain explained gerard to Crovax, but take it from experience you will tire before it does 
And that's so good yeah. and so true. They don't make it like this anymore. I can, I'm can. i so happy for you to have this art. Congratulations. It's, I think, one of two arts that we very actively search for. So most of the other ones, it's just getting tempted by seeing stuff in the groups. The Intruder Alarm was one that was just auctioned off. And we have actually a cat called Ajani. So we, we are cat lovers. And so that's one portrays Miri. So we... Yeah, we were a big fan of, of getting that one. And it, it was kind of a steal at the time, I would say, for the price we had it at. But that got me thinking about Megrim, that because I knew the the yeah, the arts were, were so related. So yeah, it, it uh, took some time, took some convincing to get the owner to sell it to me. Yeah, eventually it got shipped over from Texas to my place. And I'm super happy with that one. And it's super cool. What you said about the, you know, art and flavor text, Victor. I look at some of these old bangers and I stumbled across, you know, the original Final Fortune. The art is crazy good. I love it. On it. But I love it. The flavor text is even better. So for people who don't know what Fine Fortune actually does, it's an instant for two red, like red, red. Take another turn after this one, you lose the game at the end of that turn. And the flavor text is want all, lose all. And I just like, they don't, they don't make them like that anymore. Nope. Nope. Mm-hmm. Mm. If you look at the art also, it's just so perfect. Yeah, it's like yeah. a it's yeah. like a dance, I think, between two warriors is what it looks like in my head. The white and the green streaks, the there's speed in the art in a way, an elegance, yeah. It is. One's getting super stabbed also. <laughs> so they're like yeah, it's it's just it's crazy. They don't they don't make them like they used to. Yeah, Mirage man. So good. So very soon the European Legacy Masters 2023 will be upon us. Long time listeners will remember that Christopher might have secured a spot in the tournament due to playing well in the tournament earlier this summer. And he sure has. Stockholm Legacy Report will be represented at the highest level of legacy play on the continent. And we are stoked about this. Tom, you are one of the co-chairs of the European Legacy Masters. What is this tournament really? How did it come about? The short version of it is that the European Legacy Masters hopes to be the community-organized European Championship for, for Legacy. And we would have loved just calling it the European Legacy Championship, but because there is already a Legacy European Championship that organizes standard <laughs> that doesn't and pioneer play events, <laughs> we couldn't. So that's the European Legacy Masters aims to be a community-driven championship for, for European Legacy players. How we go about this, we try and set up trials or, or qualifiers throughout Europe in uh, over the course of the year in as many countries as we can not by necessarily pushing to to organize new events but by strapping or bootstrapping ourselves to the the infrastructure that's already in place it is a group of people from 20 different countries that are yeah discussing all the time how we can make legacy better in Europe and how we can yeah feed into our invitational because in the end it's a, it's an invitation only event it'll take place at September 2nd alongside four seasons Bologna so that's on Saturday we are uh, taking over their stream then and there will this year be i think just shy of 110 players competing oh, yeah. for the trophy. We have about 2,000 euros worth of prize money. The event is, is free to play for all contestants. And there, we also have a bunch of extra swag, like a sick custom playmat and, and awesome gear from our sponsors like Ultimate Guard. I have to thank our sponsors for making it all possible. We are getting support from Card Markets, 341, Buse, MTG, the Italian guy who's also behind Geddon, And then the In Response crew is also helping us out and also supporting the event, as well as from the Netherlands Bazaar and so it's really a community effort from all across Europe. First of all, to crown a champion, to have this title, especially in a time when Eternal Weekend wasn't so sure for Europe. Last year we didn't get one. But also to try and 
reinvigorate and make legacy worthwhile again at the local level. That's actually the, you could say, the bigger goal of the project, even though it's in a way less visible, is not this one big event each year, but it's giving players a reason to play Legacy again. Because ever since there were no GPs left, Legacy doesn't offer you any pot into the official play system anymore. And that's kind of a shame, but it's also an opportunity for us, the community, to build something that we believe in ourselves and no longer be, I would guess, subject to the whims of, of organized play, which has uh, unfortunately proven in the past to be yeah not always yeah, as great yeah. as it could be. So we're just doing it ourselves. I remember playing the same tournament as, as Christopher qualified to this event from and top 18, and I was so excited and kind of proud of doing well in a tournament with sort of that had stakes in that sense. And stakes mm. for me here, I mean, some players were different from this, but for me, like, I don't really, the price money or whatever that is, like, you can, I don't give a flying fuck. Like, yeah, give me a custom playmat and the bragging mm. rights for this. Like, yeah. that meant so much to me to just top eight this tournament and a trophy we have a trophy and a title and i think you're doing i mean from my perspective at least you're succeeding in that sort of dual ambition because the event i think is something that people are indeed looking forward to but at, at the same time that local tournament was just so much fun to compete in because like well actually if you win this you get to go to this tournament and that's just so cool that's unique for legacy because legacy didn't really have PTQs like we used to. You don't really get invited anywhere for winning at Legacy. You can get a dual end, of course, but that just disappears into your binder. The invitation doesn't. The invitation is a next step up. It's a next challenge and it's an opportunity because we are doing it alongside a big event to travel with your friends and to make a weekend out of it. And then because the way we set it up, we, we wanted to make sure there's a minimum number of players qualified from each country. That means not only are you going, you are bringing a couple of friends and maybe making some new ones. We are also seeing communities mix up that didn't do so before because they are traveling to go and try and capture each other's qualification slots, which in at the beginning of the project, <laughs> there was some discussion about, but I very much stand by is, is, is much more exciting. Healthier. And health, yeah. And, it, and it, 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 it gets communities interacting and learning from each other and growing. And, and that's everything we wanted. So from our point of, point of view, we've been trying to keep track with, with tournament attendances and our qualifiers. And we're trying to listen to the players whenever they're coming up to us. And I've had nothing but positive feedback from players so yeah it makes me very happy and also the thing you mentioned about feeling something again competing for real stakes here's a little anecdote i played three of the four qualifiers in belgium and i judged the fourth one because i I, i'm also well i used to be a judge and now i'm an unofficial judge you could say i'm no longer certified but i can still do the job if they need me and so i top eighted the first two of them and i remembered losing the quarters of the first one. And I knew I couldn't play myself because on the day of ELM, even if I were to were to be able to qualify, I already committed to helping support the stream because we are putting up a big stream. We are getting some awesome casters. We are putting in a lot of effort to make the production significantly better than last year. And even still, even though I knew that if I had even just, even if I won the qualifier, I would have had to forfeit my spot to the next runner, to, to the next player. It still stung because I so, I so badly wanted to prove myself. Even if I can make it to the actual event, I want to prove that I'm good enough to be there. Yeah, the brag rights. But also for myself. Because there's, yeah. again, there, there weren't really any achievements left in Legacy besides, of course, there's the big single day events. But those are, spiking that one is rough for everybody. buddy. Yeah, so what's yeah, important for, sure. for me is also that the goal of the series is something achievable and Making it to the final to the final tournament is already a, an achievement for many players, but it's something that's I think with the current setup is just achievable enough for everybody to to strive for, and that makes it beautiful. 
So I am very, I very much love. Because that's one thing I really loved. Sort of what, what I think tournament play did best when sort of trying to achieve that. Because they kept selling it for so many years. It's like you too can go to the pro tour. You too can see be... the world. Mm-hmm. Play the game, see the world. Yeah, yeah, it's a great slogan. <laughs> Thing though, so in reality, it was extremely unattainable <laughs> because you had to sort of you had to spike so hard every time uh, in, in tournaments. Yeah, and and keep that going. But but they sure got me a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for a couple of years, they had this structure with when when they had the Magic World Cup when you were gathering a team of four players, like the top pro player and three qualifiers. So you could go to these national regional qualifiers. And I remember one year traveling to Gothenburg, which is the second largest city. And uh, I lost the finals of that qualifier, but it felt like such a cool tournament to compete in because like it felt within my grasp just so much more than being at a pro tour was and you could see when when these world world money cup events were were streamed you would have of course a bunch of top players from pro points and also someone who's just spiked the tournament because they're a really good player but you would also have these unknown names that were then just there who sort of played Mm. the game and saw the world and i think that sort of saga-esque feeling is here with the european legacy masters and i'm so here for that yeah i came up I well came up i mean i i learned playing competitively i would say in in various eras of the ptq series as well and i was in that same boat as you i i was able to ptq one of the very first uh to, to no to ptq no to top eight a ptq very early when modern was just a new format and that was really literally out of nowhere but it was just enough to give me that idea that, okay I, I lose in the quarters but that means if i only make it two more rounds i too can be at the pro tour and i think for like even the the best of my the years when i was the, the, the most invested in the the official tournament circuit that was the level i found myself at like i've also top aided a wmcq and i also lost in the corners but i was I've, i always felt like i know i'm not one of the favorites in the room but if i really do my best i can be good enough to spike this I need to get lucky maybe for two or three rounds. And that's really the sweet spot, I guess, to to keep you thirsty and to keep you competing. And for this, you'll find that many of the ideas behind the Legacy Masters and the feeling we are striving for is very much that same feeling. And then combined with, I guess, the experience I talked about earlier with the Belgian Legacy Cup, but also with the way, for example, the Italians run their local leagues and their national invitation, right? So the idea of, yeah, we have each community take care of their players to try and bring out their best and they can more or less figure out how to do that on their own terms by organizing their own events. But everybody this way within their tournament structure they know and are familiar with has something more to fight for, not just I win at my store, but now I can qualify for Bologna and I can become the European legacy master like Samuel Zahorczak from Slovakia who won last year, who I for one had never heard of. But now that he won, I kept <laughs> paying attention a bit and the guy kept on crushing in many of the Austrian events this year. So he's uh, the guy is apparently very good, but I never would have known about him if he wasn't the 2022 yeah. Yeah. Uh, European Legacy Masters. So I'm very much excited to see who will take the crown this year. Or if Samuel can defend the title, that would be absolutely amazing as well, of course. Christopher Wikström, of course, it's where I put my money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, pressure. <laughs> we'll see. My main goal is to eat a lot of gelato, like gelato and uh, <laughs> try and not get dazed too hard. Oof, nice. I do this every episode. I put in this really shady pun, and Victor gets really mad at me. But I, this is no different. So I'm shocked that Victor said that he really enjoys, you know, steaks. 
in magic because he's vegan. And I'm I'm saying this. I'm saying this because I know he won't have beef with me afterwards. Alright. So who are the dads again in the podcast? I, I'm not I'm that the only, only one. Me and Robin. I'm the only one who's not a dad. I have well, two cats. You, you've blended in perfectly. Yeah, I, I know. Say. I assimilated into this group. You are dead ma- dad material. Maybe I'm overcompensating. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to go to Bologna. And uh, one of my friends that moved from Stockholm also qu- qualified in Lund, which is a big student city. So we're actually going together and we're excited to see how the crowd and competition is going to be. We'll see what decks we play. A <laughs> big shocker incoming. <laughs> and that, my friends, is all we have for this episode. So much excellent legacy coming up. Do you have any metagame predictions for the ELM? Let us know on the Discord server. Perhaps we can do a little voting there. You can find the link in the episode description. And in addition to Discord, you can find us on X. We're at Stockholm Legacy. We're also on X personally. Still, Robin, mm. where can our <laughs> listeners reach out to you? You can Twix to me. <laughs> I am Jacka underscore Bo. Whenever you say X, I die a bit inside. But uh, yeah. <laughs> you can find me on uh, the former Twitter platform at monolith mtg and tom do you have a handle social media i do but uh, i also think i'm contractually obliged to uh, shout out the european uh, legacy master socials for that i would uh, recommend eu legacy masters on twitter or x however you want to call it and we also have a website that's europeanlegacymasters.com where you can find all event info the stream will be at twitch.tv slash for tournaments and that's on september 2nd and if you want to learn more about me and my bullshit that's uh, also on x and i am at blc underscore tom blc for belgian legacy cup and you can find me on this weird platform still as well under disco drogo and that is the end of the 97th episode of stockholm legacy report thank you robinson c and christopher rickstrom extra warm thanks tom the decker for gracing our podcast with your presence i am victor bernhardt's special thanks to you for listening the great and mysterious fairness has as per usual written our music you can find more of their work on spotify and until our next episode remember that italy is not far with an interrail card <laughs>